enough? Can you hear me? As always, uh, it is a privilege to be with you all. And some of you I was able to see, I believe, in it was late January or February when I was here for a conference and was able to share God's word with you then and did a message on evangelism then. And I was leaning towards a, a passage that I've been studying personally in 2 Corinthians 5 about being ambassadors of Christ. And last night, I decided against it and went with something else. So uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 10, and I, I was recalling my final sermon that I preached here uh, before moving away two years ago, and I believe it was Christ is all. And uh, it's been a couple years since that, and I was dwelling on God's word and which passage I might uh, desire to go to, and Hebrews 10 kept coming to my mind. It's something that I taught through here over five years ago now, uh, so probably none of you remember any of it. So we have an opportunity to relearn it. And uh, we walked through Hebrews chapter 10, uh, well, all of Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 5, five years ago in the spring, and we took about six or seven sermons to go through this first section of Hebrews 10. This morning we're going to look at it as a whole and do... Uh, kind of a flyover view of Hebrews chapter 10. But as some of you may remember or already just know from your understanding of Scripture, Hebrews is a sermon. Uh, We're not sure of who authored the book of Hebrews, but we do know who it's written to, obviously, by the name. You can take a guess. Hebrews, Victor's on. He's awake this morning. All right. And it is written because there is a struggle going on. There's a temptation for these people who have professed Christ as Lord and Savior to go back upon dependence of the law, the Old Testament law, to add onto Jesus Christ their own adherence of the law. And so you have these false teachers proclaiming that, and the author of Hebrews is fighting against it, encouraging these believers to hold fast to the true gospel, which is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. He does a number of things through Hebrews. It's a fairly large book. It's a fairly long sermon. So if we take uh, you know, the example that we have in Scripture for sermon length, it's really about an hour and 15 minutes, right? But for your sake, I won't go that long. But Hebrews is full of wonderful, wonderful truth. Pastor uh, Nathan already began the service by reading from the first chapter of Hebrews, where it talks about God speaking in various ways and through the prophets, etc. But now he's spoken to us through his son. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, He goes later on in Hebrews and he talks about just how Jesus is, I don't like to use the word better, I like to use the term best. Jesus is best. Why? Because he is better than angels, he's better than the prophets, he's better than any kings, and so on and so on. And he walks through these truths through Hebrews. And as we come to chapter 10, I want us to catch really just three things. We'll see the insufficiency of the law the sufficiency of Christ and the resulting sanctification of the belief 
and the sufficiency of Christ. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the great privilege it is to gather together as a church family. This morning we have people from down south, we have people from out west, we have people from right here, of course, in Port Washington, and what a joy it is to gather together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truths that have already been sung, the fellowship that has happened, the breaking of bread together downstairs, the teaching, and Lord, we ask that as we finish the Lord's Day uh, service with the preaching of your word and then fellowship downstairs, that all would be done to your glory. Pray that you give me clarity of mind, help me to communicate well your word and nothing else, and Lord, give us receptive hearts and minds to the truths of it. We pray all these things through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin by reading a few passages, and we'll kind of come full circle as we work through the passage. But I'm sure we're all familiar with Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. We have the creation account in the beginning, who? God created the heavens and the earth, and over and over again we hear a repeated phrase, it was good. I'm doing all this because I need my team to stay awake after a very long week, so we're going to have a lot of interaction. I may have to call out names if necessary. Well, we see it was good, it was good, it was good. After he creates man, he makes a final proclamation. It was very good. It was good. And we see Adam and Eve dwelling in perfection with God in the garden. They have a relationship with him. They're walking with him. They're talking with him. They're with him. And they have this beautiful relationship. And then, of course, as we know the story in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. They rebel. They break the one rule that God gave them. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as God comes walking in the garden afterwards, instead of Adam and Eve running to God to enjoy the fellowship that they once had with him, this perfect relationship that they had with him, they ran away from God and they hide themselves and they seek to cover their shame. Why? Because even before God proclaimed judgment on Adam and Eve, they knew that something was amiss. They knew that they had broken this relationship with God, and instead of joy and love in their relationship with God, now they had fear and shame. And what I want us to catch, though, really simply, as we know this account, is in Genesis 3.24, it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden... Of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we don't have time to get into the tree of life, etc., maybe what happened to the Garden of Eden. There's one thought that maybe it was wiped away when the flood happened, and that's why we no longer would uh, have the Garden of Eden. But quite simply, I want us to catch the cherubim. There's an angel there now, or multiple angels there, guarding entrance back into the garden where mankind once had what? A relationship with God. And in fact, this cherubim, there is a flaming sword with them. That if you tried to come back to God, if you tried to come back to the garden on your own way, you could say in a sense, then what would happen? You'd be dead. 
And all through, if you word search the word cherubim for angels, or which are angels, and you read through the Old Testament and through Scripture, we see that on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, Exodus 25, 18, there are what on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? Two cherubim. In Exodus 26, the next chapter, as they're giving instruction for the making of the veil, it says, you shall also make a veil of violet, purple, and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, and it shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skilled embroiderer. When you have the testimony or the, the uh, presence of God with Israel in the Holy of Holies, it appears over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies upon the seat, the covenant surrounded by the cherubim, as we just read, behind the veil with cherubim. And so what I believe God is trying to remind Israel of is the very condemnation that he gives to Adam and Eve and the sinfulness, this broken relationship, and that man no longer has what? Access to God or a relationship with God. It's been severed. And so every time the Israelites are seeing these cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant or at the veil, and the priests enter, as was already mentioned in Sunday school, I believe it was, the Day of Atonement, they would enter once a year after the shedding of blood up to 200,000 lambs killed on that day, and the blood being spilt, and they would go through this veil into a picture of the Holy of Holies. But it was guarded by this veil and the cherubim. That if you tried to approach any other way, what would happen? Flaming sword was there to meet you. There are many other passages, but for the sake of time, we won't cover them. But why do I bring this up? Well, quite simply, we understand that there is this broken relationship with God and that mankind no longer has this perfect relationship with him, cannot come into his presence but God has now sent his, his son. And really, Hebrews, one of the biggest themes, if not the biggest theme in Hebrews, outside of Jesus, is entrance into the presence of God. It talks a tremendous amount about the temple and the Holy of Holies and the sacrificial system and the priesthood. And how man can approach God and his presence. And what he's going to do for us, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, is point out the insufficiency of the law to give us access into the presence of God. Look at your Bibles with me in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers have once been cleansed and would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
and whole burnt offering and sacrifices for sin. You have, not, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. These verses, really verses 1 through 8 and verse 11, we see the insufficiency of the law. I want us to make a few notes that are given to us or points that are made about the insufficiency of the law. And if you look at verse 1, I'll read it again. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the form of those things itself. In other words, its purpose was never to do what? It was never intended to be sufficient or to save. It was merely a shadow, a foreshadow. Well, maybe you can think about a time when you had a separation from a loved one. You know, these teenagers that are with us this week, they've been gone from mom and dad for a whole entire week now. And they're maybe excited to see their parents tomorrow, hopefully. Right? And it would be foolish if, as we pull into the church parking lot, and hopefully the sun is nice and high and it's still somewhat early in the day when we get back to Wisconsin, and there's a shadow cast that as these children, these teens are approaching their parents, that they reach down to try to hug the shadow of their parents. That'd be foolish. The shadow means really nothing. It's just a picture of their parent that is coming. A shadow really is nothing. And now I'm not proposing that God's law that he gave was nothing, but what he's pointing out is that it was merely a shadow of something that would come and something that is. And that any dependence on it or embracing of it as if it was the real thing is really what? Foolishness. So its purpose was never to save. There is no substance in the ritual law of sacrifice. We also see that it's not effectual. Look at the next verse. Or as we continue on in that verse, they can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make those who approach perfect. And his argument here is otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. So we see that the sacrifice of blood, uh, or the sacrifices of bulls and goats, was not effectual. How do we know? Because God ordained that they be offered how often? Year after year after year after year. And I already made note, some theologians would guess or estimate that up to 200,000 lambs would be sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. That is a lot of bloodshed. It was not effectual. If it had been effectual, then God would have said what? 
it's done. It is, taking a note from Jesus, it is finished. But he never said that when it came to the blood of bulls and goats. So its purpose was never to save, it's not effectual, and its function, it has a function defined for us in this passage, and it's not to save. Rather, verse 3, it says, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. So the function of the law there for the Israelites was a reminder of their sins. It wasn't to cleanse them from their sins, but actually to keep them mindful of their sins and their need of cleansing. It functioned as a reminder. The seriousness of their sin that there would be blood shed for sin. So we see that its purpose was never to save, it's not effectual, the function was a reminder, but also it's not natural. It's not natural. Verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, or we could say the sins of who? Of humans. Now we come full circle right back to Genesis. Who was or who were the people? I just gave it away, right? But what type of creation broke relationship with God? Animals or man? Man. Bulls and goats? Lambs? No. Humans broke the relationship with God. And so we've had a long week together. And thankfully, people have had great attitudes. But let's say somebody got really tired and grumpy and punched me in the face when I said breakfast would be at 8.15, and that was too early because it wasn't going to be enough sleep. And so Caleb punches me in the face, and then Tim comes and says, Pastor Kevin, I'm really sorry, Caleb punched you in the face. Does that make the relationship between me and Caleb right? Come on, folks. No! He's not the offender. And in that way, that's exactly what was going on, in a sense, with the Old Testament law of sacrifice. Mankind broke the relationship with God. And animals are stepping in and saying, of course, they're not saying it, but humans are using the blood of animals to say what? I'm sorry, let's set things right. I'm sorry, let's set things right. And we understand that that is not the way things function. So, the, the bloodshed of animals, in this sense, is not natural. It is not effectual. It's not sufficient. Because they were not the offenders. Next, we see it is a picture of the things to come. Verse 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, speaking of Jesus, he says... You have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. You have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin. Then I said, Behold, I have come, it is written of me in the scroll of the book, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offering and offerings for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to to the law. So even though they're offered according to the law, again, the whole point of the law was not to save them from their sins, was not to give them access into the actual presence of God. And so it is a picture, but it contrasts the substance. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, 
The blood of bulls and goats cannot give you access into the true presence of God. And so Christ comes and he says what? You have prepared a body for me. So now we have not just God, the Son of God, but we have the Son of God in a body in human flesh. And who was it that broke the relationship with God? Man. Who needs to set it right? Man. Who would and could set it right? None of us. So God takes on a body. He becomes God in human flesh. The Son incarnate. To set things right. So we see that the ritualistic law of sacrifice and the priesthood and the shedding of blood, it was a picture, but it is also, it's, it's almost like an opposite picture because it did not have the actual substance. It points us right back to verse 1. The law it has only a shadow of the good things to come. So this is... A very brief summary, the insufficiency of the law. Let us consider the sufficiency of Christ. If the law is insufficient, then in one sense we're left without hope, right? It was even ordained by the law. They were offered according to the law. But God said, as he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, that one day Eve would have a a seed, and the seed would crush the serpent's head. And all through Scripture, we get continued progressive revelation about the seed. This seed would not just crush the serpent's head, but he would be a descendant of Abraham, and through him, not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Through David, we hear more of him, that he would be a perfect and eternal king. From Isaiah, we learn that he would be a king, yet he'd suffer. He'd be a suffering servant that he would be crushed and striped and bruised and would die. Yet he would live to see his offspring. So we see a glimpse of the resurrection, even in Isaiah, and the list could go on and on and on. But God now has spoken to us through his Son, the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, better than kings, better than prophets better than angels and better than any priest there ever was. And he comes and he is sufficient. Let's look at verse 9 once again. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. Well, hopefully in these points you'll see some contrast made between Jesus and the law, the insufficiency of the law and the sufficiency of of Jesus, of Christ. The purpose we see here was always Christ. Do you see that? He came to do the Father's will. We know from Scripture that before the foundations of the world were laid, God had this plan. He had already chosen those whom he would set his saving love upon. He had already chosen the means by which he would save them, the blood of God the Son in human flesh. And so the purpose of the law was never to take away the sins of the world. 
But the purpose from before the foundations of the world, according to God's will, was for Jesus to come and take away the sins of the world. Jesus said, I have come to do the Father's will. We see that the shadow gives way to substance. Look again in verse 9. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So Jesus comes to abolish the law and to establish a new way. And not that that first way was the true way, but rather it was a picture towards the actual substance that was coming. Number three, we see where the law was ineffectual, Christ was effectual. Verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sin. And they had to be offered year after year after year. But Jesus comes and it says we are sanctified through his offering. And how often does it take place? Only once. Once and for all. And so the proof is in the pudding, one could say. It worked. Why? Because Jesus didn't rise from the dead, come back, die on the cross, rise from the dead, come back, die on the cross, rise from the dead. No. Jesus died once for all. And on that cross, he did declare it is finished. His death was effectual. We also see that it is natural. Do you notice it It goes, the author says there in that verse, verse 10, the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. You notice this emphasis, it seems like he's going a little out of his way to emphasize that Jesus had a what? A human body. It was natural, a human paying the price for human sin. We see its function, that it actually worked and therefore is final. He explains it further on in verses 11 and following. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. When we read of the priests in the Old Testament, they're not sitting They're daily and continually ministering and sacrificing and burning incense and pouring out drink offerings and so on and so on and so on. Their work never finishes, but Christ comes, he dies, and he sits down at the right hand of God. Verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Or you could say there's no longer offering of the blood of bulls and goats necessary. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. And now we can say this, that Christ's sacrificial work was finished, but is Christ's work finished, period? Well, no, he continues to intercede for us. Isn't it great joy to know that instead of in the Old Testament, they're they're thinking, many of them, that their dependence is upon the blood of a bull 
or a goat or a lamb down here on earth in a shadow, the temple, of the true substance of the actual Holy of Holies in heaven. And that animal is slain and the body is disposed of. But our sacrifice, our Savior, didn't stay dead. Rather, he rose and he actually entered, as Hebrews just a few chapters, one or two chapters earlier, says he entered into the true holy of holies. Into the very actual presence of God. Into the place which the temple pictured. Which it shadowed. And he sits at the right hand of the judge. And so that whenever our name is brought up by the accuser, Jesus is there. And he's defending us and he's saying, no, no, no. I already paid the price once and for all. They're justified. They're sanctified. They are righteous through my work. That's the sufficiency of Christ. I think it's such a beautiful picture when Stephen is being stoned. He looks up and he says, I see Jesus standing. So yes, his work is complete as a sacrifice, but he is continuing to work on our behalf as our priest. He's also waiting. Why? Because God is continually working towards the day that his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, everything will be set right because Jesus was the perfect, final, sufficient sacrifice. This is the sufficiency of Christ. Because of this sufficiency, because of this wonderful theology and truth, we could say the author of Hebrews is, is preaching a miniature sermon within his big sermon. Right? And we see this all through Scripture. Romans chapters 1 through 11. Theology, 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 and theology. And then Romans chapter 12. Therefore, do this. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. Theology, theology, theology. And then therefore, do this. And in here we see verses 1 through 18, and really actually up to verse 21, theology, theology, and theology. But then he gives us implications or applications of how to live it out. So let's look at first verses 19 through 21. He gives a very brief summary of what he's just told us. He basically boils it all down and gives us a conclusion of the sermon that he just preached. So point number three, the sanctification from the sufficiency of Christ. Verse 19 is the beginning of this summary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. That is through his flesh. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, This is what we could say the conclusion. He's summing up what he's explained to us. So the therefore is going to jump over into the let us verses. All right? But he explains first, in a way, all the truth that he just gave us. Because Christ is sufficient, we have what? We have 
confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Could you just for one moment put yourself in the shoes of the high priest who on the Day of Atonement had to step into the Holy of Holies? If he came in an unworthy way, what would happen? Think of Uzzah for a moment. They're moving the Ark of the Covenant where those two cherubim are seated. And the cart stumbles and Uzzah reaches out just to stabilize it. And Uzzah is struck dead. He approaches God in the wrong way, you could say. Now you have these priests year after year on behalf of all of the Israelites going in to the Holy of Holies, which again is just a shadow. But he's going into the Holy of Holies and the shedding of blood is happening over and over and over again and he goes. Can you imagine the intimidation and the nervousness of him? But then we just this morning sang in our first song, Bold I Approach. Did you catch that? Do you realize what you're singing in that moment? That we as believers can come boldly, not just into the shadow, but into the actual substance, into the very presence of God Almighty. And that actually through the dwelling of the Spirit, the presence of God is dwelling inside of us. And we can come not scared, not nervous, but we actually come boldly into the presence of God. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of the blood of Jesus. It is a new and a living way. We've already made this point, but the blood of bulls and goats, they were killed and discarded, and they remain dead. But no, Jesus comes, and he provides a new way, a fresh entrance into the presence of God, we could say. And it's living He rose from the dead. Why? Because God was placing a stamp of approval upon his sacrifice, saying it is complete. Earlier on in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 and 20, it says this, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to hold firmly to the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. No longer is it one high priest who enters once a year through the blood of bulls and goats and this human-made veil, but now Jesus Christ has come. He inaugurated for us through the veil that is through his flesh. Entrance daily, continually, all the time for each believer, not just the pastor or the pope or a bishop or a deacon or those who have been saved for 60 years and are really godly. No, but for every single believer, access to God Almighty. And so no longer is that veil with the cherubim blocking access into God, but when Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished, and bowed his head from the top down, that veil is rent in two, and God is saying, come. 
through my son. That is the power of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because of this, because, verse 21, we have a great priest over the house of God for us. No longer these merely human priests, but now a perfect priest, God in human flesh. Because of these truths, what do we do? Verse 22, approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. How can we do it? Knowing or having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We don't have time to get into the smaller details of this verse, but quite simply we could sum it up like this. Because you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you can approach God. How do you approach him? With a sincere heart and with assurance because of what Christ has done for you. Number two, verse 23. Let's, or let us, hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Another implication or application for us straight out of this text is quite simply, do not give up. Hold fast to the confession. Again, full circle to the beginning of the sermon. Hebrews is being written to believers who are possibly or being tempted to be led astray by false teaching that they must add the law to Christ. That they must continue making sacrifices, etc., etc., etc. But what he's telling them is to do what? Hold fast to the fact that it is Jesus alone who saves. Faith alone in Jesus alone. So brothers and sisters, hold fast. Hold fast to this truth. Do not allow Satan to come and tempt you to despair, but rather look upwards and see him there who made an end to all your sin. Do not be drawn away to think that you can only come to God in prayer or have access to God or have a right standing before God when you've had a good day. No. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, how much more now that we have been sanctified, we've been cleansed, we've been declared righteous, Our sins have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ and we are adopted into his family. How much more now does God welcome us into his presence? Do not shy away. In fact, it's at the very moment when you have sinned and you have messed up and you have gone astray that God is desiring for you to come back to him. Do not allow doubts or sin to allow you to wander further from God. Rather, may they be the motivation to come back to him. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. Without wavering, why? It's all dependent on the faithfulness of God. He is faithfully holding on to you so you can trust to do what? Hold firmly on to him. We went into the city on Thursday and we brought the kids and 
many of you know Rosie and how energetic and full of life that little one is or has. And it was very often my job, I'm holding her hand. And in fact, we were so nervous with her that we put a leash on her with a backpack. It's a little backpack that she wears with a little rope attached to it so that we know we have her. But it's amazing that as I'm walking there, holding her hand, I've got that that little leash, we could say, around my wrist, and I'm holding her hand. And there are quite a few times where she let go of my hand and went away. But you know what? She never got away from me. Why? She was tethered to me. I think it's a decent illustration. I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. God the Father has a grasp of us through God the Son. And God the Son said, no man can ever pluck you out of my hand. And now, brothers and sisters, sometimes we, we kind of pull away and we get enamored by something shiny over there or by this hardship over there. But even if we feel like we've let go, God has a hold of you. And he's standing there saying, come back and grab back on. He is So therefore, because he is faithful, you keep a hold of his hand. Lastly, verse 24, let's consider how to encourage, or we could say stimulate, as a better translation, one another in love and good deeds. In other words, there is an assumption in Hebrews that these believers are gathering together as a what? It's not a trick question as a what? As a church. They are together as a body. And that that body is to be encouraging one another, stimulating one another to do love and good deeds with each other. And then he encourages them, verse 25, not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some people, but encouraging. This word is paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete, all right? coming alongside of somebody and strengthening them. It's the word used for the Holy Spirit as well. What he does for us. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, Christ will return when all the enemies will be made a a footstool. And so as that day is drawing near, we come to God the Father with a sincere heart. We hold firmly to the confession of hope. And we do it in the context of a body. We do it together. There are no lone rangers. There are no lone cowboys or cowgirls. There shouldn't be. We need each other. You cannot stimulate one another in love and good deeds if you're not with them. You're called to be a part of the body. And in order to function as part of the body, you cannot be abandoning your own meeting together as is the habit of some people, but rather encourage one another. All the more as you see that final day coming. Very briefly, I want to just make very practical applications from the sermon now. 
First, if you've not trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, take refuge in Christ for salvation. Leave all your human work and dependence on the wayside and turn to Jesus. Just as the blood of bulls and goats is insufficient to save, so also, and how much more are the good deeds that God has not even ordained? Are they unable to save us? It's about the inside, having your conscience sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus today for salvation. Those of you who have, number two, continue to rest in Christ's sufficiency. If you are saved by Christ originally, then you continue to be saved by Christ. And we must never fall back into a mentality of performance-driven standing before God. Oh, God doesn't want to hear my prayer today. I did X, Y, Z. Oh, I can't come return to God because I have dirty hands. No, God promises those who draw near to him, he will draw near to you. If we, are, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. This is the heart of God seen through the Son. Number three, come into God's presence in worship, prayer, reading, fellowship, humbled yet emboldened by Christ. Number four, hold on strongly through temptations, through trials, through doubts. 2 Timothy 2.13, when we struggle in faith, he remains faithful. And lastly, number five, be be a part of the church. You cannot do this alone. Lead others in serving Christ. Come alongside of each other and provide strength and encouragement and comfort. Take ownership because you're part of the body. We don't have to be told to take care of our own body. We shouldn't have to be told that we have to take care of our own church body. But maybe, maybe, we so easily forget what it cost to make this right here possible. It cost the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason why there are people here from different tribes and different tongues and different nations and different states. The reason they're gathered here today is only because Jesus Christ laid down his life. Do not trample on that. 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That is why we follow after Christ. That is why we have a church family. That is why we hold fast, because Christ is sufficient.